just uh, make this look nice and homely. Hello, welcome. Uh, welcome to the Dana Center, welcome to the Science Museum. Uh, you probably know we're going to be having a, a discussion about the use of technology in music. I apologize if anybody misread the poster and thought there was going to be techno music. We're going to be doing it to the IMAX tonight. Uh, we're going to be especially looking at where music technology may be leading us in the future. And to help us do that, I'm going to be joined on the stage very shortly by uh, a panel of musicians, scientists, and software developers. And maybe they can uh, shine some kind of light on where we're heading with that. Before we do that, I want to welcome to the stage someone who's going to tell us a little bit about past music-related technologies. Reading from Rough Trade Editions pamphlet number 18, Three True Tales About Music and Technology, here is its author, Robert Barra. Uh, thank you very much for that introduction, and uh, thank you also to... Nina and Chris for organizing this event. And also, also I should say thanks very much to the artist Amanda de Frumery, who is responsible for the illustrations that you'll see uh, behind me as I go on to speak. Um, when I first started writing this little book back about uh, a year and a half or two years ago or something, there, was, there were really kind of two things that I particularly had in mind. On the one hand, I wanted to find different ways of talking about the things that I was interested in. I would, I'd grown kind of increasingly sick of um, this sort of academic style of, of, of literature that, that seemed always to be kind of making excuses for itself in some ways. And I wanted to get back to a kind of storytelling that would be a bit more immediate and a bit more direct and a bit more sort of friendly, I suppose. Um, the other thing I was interested in trying to do was in expanding a little bit the, the frame of reference for this stuff. I think to some degree, not always, but to some degree, usually when people talk about the relationship between music and technology, I think they have this urge, immediately people start thinking about um, streaming music online or they think about uh, electronic music maybe or, or maybe going a bit further back, they start thinking about the beginnings of sound recording and the phonograph and things like that. But I wanted to go a bit further back than that so to see maybe what we can still learn from yesterday's dreams of tomorrow. Um, so I'm going to read to you the first of these three stories from the book. And this one is called An Android at the Opera. Deep inside your ear, between the outer parts you can see and the inner parts that you can't, there is a thin cone of flesh called the tympanum or the eardrum. Its job is to convert the vibrations of sound waves passing through the air into mechanical vibrations that your brain can understand. For over a hundred years, whenever people built machines to listen for us, like telephones, walkie-talkies, or hi-fi equipment, they based the working of those machines on the tympanum. Today, still, technologies for capturing and reproducing sound are based upon the working of the ear. But 300 years ago, when no one was very much interested in the ear, and even ear doctors were often dismissed by their colleagues as mere aurists, 
the model for sound technologies was not the ear, but the mouth. To reproduce the workings of the human mouth was thought by some to be just a few steps away from reproducing the soul. The people whose job it was to undertake such a task were not scientist entrepreneurs like Thomas Edison or Alexander Graham Bell, but clockmakers. And the greatest of these mechanical geniuses was a Frenchman named Jacques de Vaucanson. When Jacques de Vaucanson was a child, growing up in the town of Grenoble in the east of France, his mother would take him to church with her every week. While she was in with the priest, the young Jacques would stare up at the clock in the church tower. As his mother whispered her confession, the clock ticked on resolutely, and Jacques gazed rapt at its perfect, regular movements. Day after day, he stared at that clock, so long and so intently did he gaze at its hypnotic motions that finally he was able to go home and build one himself, just the same, from scratch. Throughout his childhood, Vaucanson loved fixing and building things, clocks and pocket watches, wind-up toys and cigar boxes. Whenever anyone had something that needed mending, it was to Jacques Vaucanson that they took it. On his first day at school, he arrived clutching a little metal box. An unsociable child, he seemed distracted during his lessons, intent on guarding the contents of his mysterious box. Finally, the father superior forced young Jack to open up and reveal the contents of his box. Inside, he found a myriad of little cogs and wheels nestled amongst fragments of the hull of a small model boat. I cannot study, Vaucanson swore, until I've constructed a boat that will cross by its own power the great school pond. The father superior chastised the eager boy and sent him to his room. But two days later, Vaucanson emerged with his boat intact. He wound it up and set it to water, and the little boat crossed the pond with ease. Vaucanson's ambition would not rest with clocks and boats. He dreamt of building a man. His first efforts, however, did not meet with acclaim. At 18, he joined a monastery in Lyon as a novice. Fond of the boy and keen to nurture his talents, the monks gave Jacques his own workshop. One day, seeking to impress his superior, Vaucanson invited the abbot to his workshop for tea. But when the monk was greeted, not by servants, but mechanical automatons, there to serve his cake and wipe his plate, he screamed blasphemy and promptly evicted the young novice from his workshop. It was then, cast out into the world to seek his fortune alone, that Jacques de Vaucanson set to work on his most prized invention of all. By the time he came to present it before the public in 1738, Vaucanson's mechanical flute player was by far the most complicated machine he had ever attempted. At four and a half foot tall, it was almost life-size, modeled on a famous statue in the Tuileries Gardens of a fawn sat on a rock playing a tune. But Vaucanson's flautist could really play, and it could play any flute that you could in its hands. It blew through the mouthpiece, thanks to a pair of bellows for lungs, and fingered the holes with soft leather pads to add delicacy to its hard wooden fingers, just like a real flute player. Though its workings were like a grandfather clock, 
with its wheels and pulleys and weights. No one had ever seen anything quite like Vaucanson's flute player before. The philosophers of his day called it an android, an automaton in the figure of a human, which performs functions outwardly similar to those of a man. One writer, a doctor notorious for his outspoken materialist views, said publicly that if now Vaucanson could only make a machine that talked, he would be tantamount to a god. Vaucanson never succeeded in making a speaking machine, though he worked on it off and on for the rest of his long life. Not content with a machine that merely breathed and piped upon its rock, he dreamed of building a man with blood in its veins and a song in its heart. He never succeeded. His flute player took him from the town fair to the salon parties of high society, to the academy of science, and even to the court of the king himself. Finally, in 1742, Vaucanson's flautist and other machines were put on the stage of His Majesty's Opera House on the Haymarket in London. Upon boards trod by the great virtuosos of the day stood Vaucanson's flute player trilling on its pipe. But the star of the Opera House show, the mechanical marvel that became the toast of London town, was finally not the flautist, but another invention of Vaucanson. A golden duck that could eat corn, chew his supper, and then discharge it, as the inventor himself put it, at the other end. Once wound up and left to its own devices, Vaucanson's golden bird would even go quack, just like a real duck. Thank you. Okay. So I'd now like to, uh, do you mind if I sit down? Oh, that's nice. Uh, I'd now like to uh, welcome to the stage, invite to the stage, in fact, um, in no particular order, as they say on uh, those kind of talent shows, our panel for this evening. Sam Potter, Hannah Peel, Professor or Dr. Kelly Snoop, and Robert Thomas. Please come on down. Make yourselves comfortable over there. Welcome to the Dana Center. Older members of the audience will remember that Dana won the Eurovision Song Contest in 1970, representing the Republic of Ireland. And then became an MEP between the years of 1999 and 2004. It's very nice of her to lend her this beautiful theatre this evening. <laughs> that was just a cover-up. You've not been able to sit down. So welcome. <laughs> um, I wonder if I can uh, just introduce you very briefly, and then we'll get on with, with, with our conversation. So I'm going to start with you at the end, Dr. Kelly Snoop. Correct me if I get things wrong. Professor of Media Arts Technology, an instrument maker, a music producer, and a former NASA Lunar Program Scientist. <laughs> Welcome. Then we have Mr. Sam Potter. Hello. Uh, we're going to be discussing your another of, of these um, rough trade editions. Uh, yours is called Ecstatic Data Sets. Um, how do I pronounce the thing? It's, it's called a... It's a Cosmos Atrium Scanner. Right, and we're going to learn what that is. And you 
only musician uh, involved in the band later in the period. Yes, that's correct. Next to Sam, we've got Hannah Peel. Hello, Hannah. Uh, from, uh, from Ireland. I don't know if Dana was around there. Um, a singer, composer, a multi-instrumentalist musician known for both your work as a solo artist and as a member of the Beatle Magnetic North. Welcome. And finally, just to my left, Robert Thomas. Composer, adaptive music producer, sound designer and programmer. Uh, Robert has worked with Massive Attack on the Sensory Music app Phantom, as well as with health and wellness-focused startups such as BioBeat. Okay, so welcome to the stage. Um, we'll get the ball rolling with you, Sam, if we may, because I've, as I say, the, the kind of it made it the impetus for this discussion comes from your publication of this uh, Cosmos Aperon Scanner, which is, it, I guess, uh, can be described as a speculative look at what music technology, where the music yeah. technology might be going. It's it's a real it's a real daydream from a band who hadn't made music for 10 years and um, were trying to imagine a world where music could have a certain power again. So it's, it's a speculative design. It's, um, I think at one point I was going to call it optimistic design, you know, because of the eye. It's kind of magical. Um, but yeah, we, we were kind of thinking, thinking a lot about optimism and seeing seeing the role of an artist as that of an optimist and seeing how far you can take an idea and you could see see the beauty in art, you could see these incredible qualities that the best art has and then by mapping them out these things like giving yourself purpose, finding your place in the world, um, making a mark, realizing that we're only here for a temporary point in time and seeing these effects that great art gives you and then using technology to kind of cheat and not do it with music and make a book instead of releasing new music. <laughs> okay, so uh, the, the phrase that, that, that stuck in my mind um, from the introduction to the pamphlet is that although this is something set in the future, you're saying that the, the technology to make music in this way Exists. So I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that, and that can bring in some of our yeah, audience as well. I think this the the reason most of us are probably here is because we we enjoy music. Music has an effect on us. It can can bring us back to memory in the same way it did with your grandma. Uh, you can use music to calm you down. You can use it to attain different states of harmless as well. So that's the kind of stuff that Rob does. You can use it to regulate your speed as you're running. There's there's all kinds of things that music already does. Every, everything I write about in the book can happen through listening to music already. So it is a kind of tongue-in-cheek kind of thing where you're saying, oh, there's all these fancy machineries and this is what the world could be like in... 10 years time or a thousand years time or this is what the world could be like this morning if you just choose the right song and it hits you in the right way well, as you say people use music in that way now but how how can we um maybe i can bring to you and me robert you know 
I, I assume, well, in fact, I can tell you I got really frustrated the other night because I was reading up on you <laughs> and, and, and uh, how, you know, you've been working with, uh, which is part of what you're talking about, Sam, as well, that, that, some, that the music somehow reacts to you. So it's not just a case of listening to music and getting in a certain mood. Then the device that you're listening to music through is somehow monitoring you and feeding that back into what you listen to. And if I understood correctly, that you've done some work on it. Yeah. How does that work? Because it, it drove me mad because I, I downloaded the app, but then I realized I needed one of them bracelet things on. And, and oh, the okay. funny thing was that it said, this app will lower your stress level. <laughs> <laughs> But then as soon as I realized I didn't have the thing, I was like, <laughs> so anyway, sorry. That was just, that was, that was user error. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess so. I mean, I, I suppose I've been exploring um, different types of experiences with music um, for a while now, but uh, I kind of off the tracks of what um, you can do with sort of current music technology. And a lot of it is really about thinking, okay, what type of music experience am I interested in and how could we get there? Just like Sam was saying, it's, it's possible to do all kinds of things now with, with technology. And if you have a sort of um, an idea of a type of experience, it is possible to get there. You just got to kind of build the software and the, and the, and the tracks as you go along, as you're, as you're moving forward. So for instance, in that case, um, you know, Sam's saying, music can help you to relax, help you to meditate, for instance, um, which is true. You, know, you can choose music that will help you to relax and put you in the right kind of mood. Um, but I think the, the next stage of it is to think, well, okay, where could we go that's a bit further than that? Wouldn't it be good if when I'm meditating, I could kind of hear how much I'm meditating as I'm, as I'm doing that exercise? Because you know, music is actually a really powerful way of and imparting an emotional state onto you. Um, and it can be very helpful when you're doing something like meditation because, you know, somebody telling you, well, you're meditating now is kind of a bit distracting, but music kind of softly changing in the background when you think about, okay, where I am actually doing this properly now is very useful. And, and these things are completely possible now. You've just got to kind of build it. So, for instance, that experience that I was making wear an EEG headset which measures your brain waves and it this thing knows if you're meditating or not. Or the one that you were going to try with your user bracelet that will look at your heart rate. Um, and it feeds that data into a, a piece of software instead of a recording of music. It's a piece of software that's generating the music on the fly. And when you then start to meditate or do a breathing exercise or something like that, then the, the piece of music knows about that and it can adapt and change to what your body is doing at that moment. Um, so that's how it works. It's just that behind it all is really a, a desire to, to try and do something different with the medium of music itself. You know. But I suppose in that case, it, it, it's part of the thing of meditating is you've got to kind of, you, you, your mind will drift guess what you say, the music will kind of hopefully drag you back to yeah, stop so that thinking one. about what you've got to do today. Yeah, that one yeah. actually kind of, the music calms down a lot when you're meditating. And if you're like some Zen master, you'll just end up kind of almost silent. And it's, uh, you know, maybe there's some kind of soft sounds there. 
thing you can you can kind of cheat with it as well. If you if you use it for long enough, you can imagine the music on the lower levels, and it means you kind of cheat and you kind of reach that deeper level of meditation without. Well, I think you associate um, you can associate a body state with music, um, and when you imagine that music, it can can help you to get into that kind of body state. Um, so it's. You know, the, what it does is set a feedback loop between you and the system, so you're you're affecting the music that moves the music to a different position, and then you know because it's music that has an emotional effect on you, so then it goes round. So that's making a good system for these type of things is about making effective feedback loops loop in a composition in a in a, in a kind of usable piece of software that's generating the composition. Kelly, I'd like to bring you in here because your career trajectory interests me. No, because not many That's people. That's not a trajectory, is but. Well, not many people move from, say, you know, NASA science to music. Most people are leaving music, as I kind of alluded <laughs> to. You know, that's like there's no money in it anymore, so let's all do something <laughs> else. So the fact that you, <laughs> the fact that you've moved the other way, mm. uh, and, and I assume. Uh, uh, Using some of that knowledge that you've gained in in a musical sense, so I mean, if you could tell me what you're doing. <laughs> I, that, uh, it'll be great if I can tell you what I'm doing. Then I'll know. Um, no, I, I I think my interest really is in um, in trying to bring about a world that's like the world was 400 years ago when art and science and music actually weren't seen as different things, that it was all kind of equally um, equally valid pathways to learning about ourselves and learning about the world and learning about um, how everything works. And I think I get, I'm really, really inspired by the scientists, um, especially a, a particular scientist named Johannes Kepler, who used principles like spiritual principles, uh, such as he believed that the that the world's organizing principle was, or God's organizing principle for the world was harmony, and he used that kind of almost religious belief to explore the harmonies of the cosmos. And in, in using these musical, applying musical principles and spiritual principles, he essentially was one of the fathers of modern astronomy and made like world-changing scientific discoveries. And that just this idea that you could use music to investigate reality. When I when I when I came upon that in in my life, and I was working at NASA, but I was also doing music and and thinking of them as different things. Just this idea that actually they're really not different things. They're two 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 ways of exploring reality. What if what if we didn't? What if we could build a, a musical instrument that is scientific and musical? So it's you know there is actually no bringing science and, and music together, but that actually just showing that they are the same thing. Um, so, th so in fact, moving from NASA to music, to me, in, in my worldview, is, is not really moving. It's just finding new ways to connect our, ourselves and our minds and our quests to understand the beauty and the truth in the world. And, and using everything at our disposal. And I think right now music is underused for that purpose. So I'm interested in finding ways to use music investigatively. So. Thank you.
I've started this new, new field of research called investigative music um, to bring, bring us back to this kind of pre-enlightenment belief that, that music wasn't, wasn't an art, it wasn't for self-expression, but instead it was one of the quadrivium. It was with geometry, with astronomy, mathematics, and music. The four of those things made up the quadrivium. And it's this, you know, it's the scientific schools of thought. And I, that fascinates me, and I, I want to bring that back. Yeah, because mu music has led to, sometimes music's led the way in some things. I, I'm, I'm thinking of the keyboard. There were, there were musical instruments with a keyboard before you had a keyboard on a computer. Or I think I think when uh, when the typewriter was first invented, they called it the, the writing particle or something like that. Oh really? Something like that, yeah. Oh wow. I hope that's true. Um, <laughs> I think I think it is true. So you know, so so the, you know, the the concept of the keyboard came from music, and then people thought of another way to use it. Mm. Yeah. So it'd be good. Yeah. It'd be great to see music kind of leading back into that. Yeah. I want to quote a little bit. You, you've touched on it, Sam, a little bit, this, this is a bit in, in, the, in the pamphlet, uh, where you're talking about how, you know, uses of this uh, um, conjectural uh, music making thing can help, and what part of it is uh, helping people deal with, with mind states, and you mentioned Alzheimer's there, and that's why I'd like to bring you in here, uh, Mike, because I know that you've you made a record that kind of dealt with the, the kind of link and the kind of symbiosis between well, what music can do for people who are, who are suffering from Alzheimer's. It was very close to him, actually, it was your mm -hmm. grandmother, wasn't it? Yeah, my grandmother, who had, um, she was living with Alzheimer's for about uh, 10 years. And so I think probably a lot of people in this room um, will have been affected by it in some way, but um, either as a carer or experienced a family member. But um, you know, you gradually start to lose a connection with someone whom you adore and have grown, you know, you love throughout your whole life. And to not be able to talk to that person or feel like you can connect with them again was very upsetting to the point where sometimes, I suppose, you know, over that time in my 20s, I was kind of like, shall I go visit? What's the point in visiting? Will she even remember that I've been to visit? You know, you get to that kind of state, and I just read, happened to read something online that said, you know, the, the use of music um, the way it can bring people back in terms of bring them back to a certain place. And at, at this particular time, it was Christmas, um, and she um, was very far in the stages of Alzheimer's. So, you know, she was kind of living in a kind of state that she thought she was about between the age of probably about seven and 12 years old. So she wasn't aware of where she was. She thought she was in London, which is in Ireland. Um, and so I said to my father, oh, let's sing some Christmas carols in the nursing home. And she kind of went from a state of like in her own world of, you know, when you're s saying, hi, Granny, how are you? And giving the kiss and how are you? And singing a song and just completely going from here to, to here and opening her eyes and singing the lyrics to Christmas carols, which is mind-blowing because she, you know, she would ask my father, um, are you my lover? Like, you know, things that you can, <laughs> yeah, it's quite <laughs> awkward. Um, 
so you know there's that level of of memory that has disappeared but you can remember a song and and the being a musician and a composer I was like why have I never done this before what what is going on this is insane and you know everybody in that nursing home started to join in and people were smiling and and it was just a completely different change of environment just from seeing those Christmas carols and that led me to investigate why what is happening what is this disease like is it a thing which I discovered is not something of old age it is a disease that we can have early onset um, and uh, I just happened I grew up in so I was born in Ireland but I grew up in Barnsley in South Yorkshire I just happened to come here actually they were doing an Alzheimer's late uh, run by the Alzheimer's Society oh no sorry UCL were running it and you could go up and find information people talking about um, and I learned about the statistics first of all one in three of us will be affected uh, there is no cure. We're about 20 years behind in research. Um, and it just blew my mind. I just couldn't comprehend exactly what was happening. So, And I happened to meet um, a girl from Barnsley who is a scientist called Selena Ray, who is studying and growing brain cells in Petri dishes um, to analyze and look and see if we can find a cure and see what affects so it's interesting, like you say, that music can somehow go to somewhere deep within the brain. Mm -hmm. The thing with the brain's over or whatever. But it, it's, and I think maybe some um, theory on that is that, that, that maybe the, the auditory cortex is one of the first things to develop, isn't it? So it's yeah. the last one to go. Yeah. So, so like we're saying, music is quite a fundamental part of how the brain builds itself. We're going to take, we'll have a little musical break now because I know, Hannah, that you also uh, make musical boxes. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought it would be interesting to ask you to play one because here we've got an example of old technology. I guess this is the first attempt at making, you know, programming music yeah. uh, rather than a, a floppy disk or whatever. We've got a piece of paper with holes punched in it and that's going to reproduce a musical performance. Mm -hmm. so, um, so I'm just going to play a little bit now. Let's see if anybody can recognize it. Because <laughs> that's the other thing with music, isn't it? I mean, once it's in there, it's there forever, really. Yeah. Do you think certain tunes? Definitely. You can play it on anything and you still recognize it. Well, we'll soon it, find out, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> if I did a good job or not. <laughs> magically transported us back to the very dawn <laughs> of music technology. I've got a slide I'd like you to have a look at now. Um, <laughs> here we are. As I say, that's, that's an older form of technology. And as far as I know, this is the first human music 
technology, bone fluids. And the thing is, the really important thing there is the holes. Because without the holes, that's just leftovers from a meal. <laughs> but the holes make it technology. And the reason I, I mention it really is I think it leads us back into discussing this thing of, of where music's going and where it can go. Because um, when they've analyzed these flutes and played them, they've found that the positioning of the holes replicate what in Western music is called fourths and fifths, you know, this interval that not only is used in like most modern pop songs probably used in, in, in that song we just heard there, but they're also the most ubiquitous intervals in, in, the, w in the world, really, in, in all musical systems. So I think that's fascinating that, you know, you would have somebody in a cave blowing on a piece of bone, experimenting and then finding that these certain notes make them feel good in a way. And if I've understood what you've written, Sam, a, a, a lot of that's to do with, you know, that you discover something that you weren't sure of before because uh, one thing that you're talking about, I, I thought you put it in a nice way, I was looking on uh, your website, talking about whale song, about the fact that people, um, well, can you explain, there's something about hearing whale song which you wouldn't hear it naturally because you wouldn't be swimming in the water with the whale. So you know what, Jarvis, I, I don't know what you're on about. <laughs> I was I doing my research and looking on your website. I don't think of... I don't think I've thought of whale song too much. Don't you? Um, well, it, well, it is beautiful, and it's sad, it's no, it's sad that the whales can't hear each other okay. anymore. But I've got a very vivid imagination. But <laughs> no, I like it. There is a thing about um, the overtone series with those intervals, yeah. which, uh, I th which some composers kind of think about as a, a way of thinking about dissonance and consonance and harmony in music. Um, because I think that these intervals, the fourth and the fifth, happen if you if you um, if you just plucked a piece of string and you analysed that sound that that made, there would be the fundamental, which is like the first sound, the one that you hear, is that note. But there's also these additional harmonics that happen above that. And these um, these intervals, the fourth and the fifth, are the ones that happens first in that harmonic series. And as you move up through the harmonic series, you get much further up, you get to these much more unusual intervals like the minor ninth or something like that, but they're really far away in, in, the, in the harmonic series. Um, so some composers have these ideas around uh, why we think that there are, you know, why consonants and harmony feel good to us, um, because they're the things that we hear a lot in, in sound that just comes from nature, from that natural sound, from plucking bows and things like that. Um, and these unusual sounds are much further up the harmonic series, are much rarer. But they also tend to happen in sounds which we probably made as signs of danger, like screaming and things like that. Because um, when you're screaming, your vocal cords are, are kind of distorting. Um, so I think there could be quite a lot of stuff in in that, in terms of why certain musical things have meaning for us, you know, which are very primal. Do you think there is like a primal, universal 
always like to talk music or things that sound good. And, and if you're talking about thirds and fifths, I, I think that naturally lends itself to the fact that we, we appreciate certain things, but we appreciate certain patterns. And once you already have that system and people know what they like and you see the same in caves all over the world, you realize that when they're playing it, there's there's a certain point in that sequence where there's a dopamine hit, and the people there they they have the satisfaction and they're like that's finished, that's nice, that's good. And if you look at if you look at the way modern music or music throughout time evolves, is people playing around with that dopamine hit, like the musicians being skilled enough in knowing what makes people happy and what makes people sad, and then delivering the end of the sequence and the end of the song and that heartbreaking chorus at, at just the right time. And when you're, when you're talking of these, these really ancient people making music, I think it's, it's not necessarily how they're doing it. It's, it's definitely why they're doing it and the purpose they're doing it, whether they're doing it to, to heal, whether they're doing it to strike up morale, whether they're doing it for ceremony or remembrance or funeral or wedding. And when you start to think of music in, in an ancient way like that, it starts to, it starts to become magic again. And it, it feels like when we're talking of these, these technologies, especially the kind of biofeedback stuff and data sonification kind of things, it's, it's making me think again of our original use of music and our original uses of art. What I was haltingly trying to say, <laughs> <laughs> but you said it much and better. that's why whales are brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> because Kelly, that's why I was I was thinking because as you're saying, I was imagining you know somebody tooting along on this flute and, and realizing these sounds meant something to them. Uh, it opened up a different part of them until they heard that sound. They didn't know they liked it. Uh, and and you, you did talk about data sonification here, and I know that that's something that you've been working with Kelly. So. Again, if I've understood it correctly, you take stuff, I don't know, it could be some data on brightness of a star or, or mm -hmm. something like that, and you find some way of representing that through sound. Yeah, and I, what I was thinking of when, when we were just having this conversation was this question of why, why do these intervals feel good to us? And, and in fact, I think it's because these are written into the fabric of creation. They're written into everything. And it was those same intervals that Kepler used musically to discover the way that the planets move around the sun. So literally, these, these intervals and these disharmonies are kind of programmed into reality everywhere you look. And if, if you look at scientific equations um, that govern physics, you're almost always going to find a harmonic function somewhere. You're going to find this kind of this intrinsic harmonic relationships in, in the energies of everything that exists. And so, you know, it's it's not too much of a step to imagine. This was this was the technology Kepler had available to him, just like writing down on a piece of paper and mathematics, very basic mathematics and. Um, but now we have all this technology that allows us to take a mathematical equation or take a harmonic relationship or take, some, take this physics and turn it into sound, not just beautiful you know, plots and lines and graphs and, and, and graphics, but to, to actually 
find relationships between the, the equations that govern the order in our, our gorgeous solar system and, and turn those into, into something that w our brains process as music. Yeah. Because music is just organized sound, and there's all of this just organized, gorgeous harmony happening everywhere at all scales. I mean, the solar system is super easy to start with because it's, there's just harmonies everywhere. But, you know, even if you were looking at atoms or at molecular structures or DNA or cells, I mean, you can find these patterns everywhere, and you can find music as it is as it is actually literally embedded into our whole reality and so how do we hear that and how do we make 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 instruments that allow ourselves to explore that rather than just playing with them as candy or just for fun or just because to make us feel good like there's actually there's much more there are deeper levels to, to this this nature that is musical so it's kind of uh, making stuff that's normally invisible to us or inaudible to us it's now available to us as, as a exactly. resource to use, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that's what I took from reading the pamphlet, that in a way it's opening up music. You know, you, you, it's like discovering a new scale yeah. because you've got a new place to, to play in. Yeah, and that, that scale might come from some beautiful circumstance that exists in the fabric of reality. Mm. So when you, when you speak like that as well, when me and Kelly first met, we were talking and kind of thinking through it not as a scientist and not as a mathematician and think of it as like just a romantic artist you think we might find something turn it into music and not only would it be so beautiful you don't need anything else in the world but you might prove something that's never been proven before yeah. and it's it's exciting stuff and it's it's science it's kind of science fiction but it's it's science fiction but speculative fiction and it's, it's now, and it's happening, and it's close. And after, after being a little bit disillusioned with making music, I was suddenly like, ah, this is great. I want to be a musician again. Let's see if I can do this. Yeah. Um, Hannah, I wanted to ask you about, you, you play quite a few different instruments, don't you? And I think this is, well, it, that's traditionally how people have tried to get this thing of, of accessing different um, ideas is like if you play an instrument you're not quite sure of or, or you've never played before do you find that that you know that sometimes you might use a piece of technology not in the way it's supposed to be used and that might send you off yeah somewhere definitely different? and the nuances of things are the things that can make something really beautiful i think you know especially synthesizers you know that for for me opened up a world of you know, especially old ones, because you're using circuitry that is so basic, but is so intrinsic to everything that, you know, that electricity and things that are slightly wrong and stuff can bring about the inspiration for the most beautiful piece. So, you know, beautiful in the sense that it makes you feel good when you're making it and gives you a purpose for making it. Mm. Um, I, I think a lot of, especially when I'm creating music, I think a lot of, if I'm playing the violin, I have a lot of pressures of when learning the violin that come back and sometimes, you know, make me feel like I can't compose in on the violin because I feel like I'm not playing in tune enough or I'm not playing the right thing enough. And you go back and you kind of lose that intrinsic kind of innate drilled into you teaching that sometimes opens up a world that's really magical. Um, uh, I find that with 
to Inchi that I learned as a child at Kenny Kilkenny put aside quite a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it seems to me that maybe this technology might lead there, but it's it's more playful, and you're not sure what the result is that you're going to get from it. Mm. So Yeah, you think, you know, it's like, it's like when you get told at school that you can't sing. Yeah. And so you stop singing and that you stop using the most amazing, <laughs> 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 but you stop using the most amazing instrument that we all carry with us all the time that is individual and is totally different to every single person in the world. So I think that, you know, there's, there's an element of how we as society have trained ourselves to kind of ignore a lot of things and, and it's interest this reading your book it was you know really great at letting go of lots of different you know even though it was like this is a machine and you have like images and everything it it reminded me of that playfulness that you you, you start to forget as you grow older yeah. well you're going to move into looking at the future in a sec but um i just wanted to attempt to play this now i i brought this along because I thought this was an example of technology not necessarily being used for its original purpose. So look, you've got this thing here. It's called the Bee Gees Rhythm Machine. <laughs> it's very good quality. I've got to thank Adam Deneen for lending me this. Um, I really hope I'm not going to break it now because I think he's in the audience. Oh, he didn't have it. Yeah, thanks very much. And um, so this, as you can see, top quality musical instrument, um, I guess made for kids, and uh, it's got like four different drum things. Very realistic. Can you stop? Stop. <laughs> <laughs> can turn it off, that'll stop it. Right. But this keyboard, Let's see if you can recognize this tune um, that was composed on it. Anybody? Kraftwerk <laughs> pocket calculator, yes. Have we got a slide? There was a picture anyway of, uh, of Ralph Hutter playing it. So that's another, uh, you know, I guess no one thought that was going to get used to, to create a pop masterpiece. They just thought it was something to keep kids quiet with and then they probably bust it after about 10 minutes. <laughs> but that's it. So technology can lead anywhere if you are prepared to go with it. And that's where I want to get on now as to where we might be headed, uh, you know, with with this technology, so, Robert. Well, um, no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the hard thing is that it's so many possible different directions, and I mean, this is one of the things that um, it's sort of amazing, but also quite frustrating for me because I'm kind of, um, whenever I talk about what I do, then it's al it's always, oh well, you know, you're doing. AI and music, or you're doing biometrics and music, or you're doing, um, you know, Instagram music, and all of these different types of directions. Which, to be honest, they're, they're all possible things that we can explore now. Um, and the hard thing is that they're they're all 
quite different if I make a system that will help you to, to run an exercise um, and you know make music into that system. Uh, that's completely different to the music and the software of, of meditation music systems. It's completely different to what I've just been doing with Method Attack, which is kind of making a, an app which is sort of like an Instagram which you shoot videos with, but the music is changing based on what you shoot in the, vi in the video, you know. Well, that's an interesting so point there, of, and I suppose that's an interesting point. With, with all these uh, advances is, is where musicians are, because sometimes it's a case of some software. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's generative. So what's the role, like in this Massive Attack thing, what's, have they provided music for that that then is changed by what you do? Or, or yeah, what? so I mean, I kind of work as, I mean, what I do is really musical compositional when I'm doing my own stuff and software programming. So, and I've come from the world of music to, to, to become more and more technical as I needed to, to be able to do unusual things. So the way I think about it, and I think it's the most accurate really, is that it's always happened with music. That, you know, in the 50s at uh, EMI Abbey Road, you had people that were thinking, okay, what do we do with recording now? We've basically, we've stuck the, the, the bands in front of microphones and hit record, what else can we do? Um, and then they think, oh, well, you know, we've got two years, so let's make kind of two sound source, Art Stereo, okay, what can we do with that? Um, oh, let's put all the drums on one side and all of the vocals on the other side and the bass and then, okay, well, that's not very good. Um, so let's sort of um, mix it all together. Like we need like a thing to do that. So let's make a desk and like, you know, so it's kind of what do you want to do with music always drives technology, which you know, it's painful and slow to make at the beginning. And you have a range of people that are involved in that, from kind of technical people, engineers that are actually building stuff. Uh, and then you've got musicians and producers and, and people who are enabling that creative process to happen and, and shifting the creative process into a different direction. And that's kind of what I do, really, is sort of work with musicians with when I'm doing my own music I'm making the music and making the system um, so for instance with massive attack it's like thinking about you know like Rob Jamaya for instance from the band was sort of thinking well you know what should happen when you when you when you stop moving when the image stops what what would be interesting to happen to the music at that point so the relationship there is kind of like um, a producer and an artist I guess like what would happen in the album at, at a certain point, you know. Now it's kind of like what happens in this experience at a certain point. Um, and then there's kind of technical aspects about doing that. But I think what happens in general with music and, and technology is that that separation shifts and changes over time to the point where the musician is also the engineer and the producer. And the, you know, music technology has completely done that over the last 30 years to the point that there's millions and millions of people making incredibly like, detailed productions in their bedroom now. Um, the current state of the art is kind of a, a position where you're making bespoke software to, to, to create an artistic vision that's not possible with normal music production. Yeah. 
but it's just it's kind of filled that way. And what about collective experiences? That's what I'd like to throw out now, because what what you're describing sounds more like something that you would listen to on your headphones or something, or you would experience or, um, alone. Yeah. So, I mean, actually, this you know, this one I'm doing with the Barbican actually is quite similar, where we're going to sort of think about that. So you're going to have the audience controlling a bit of music on stage, which will be a kind of string performance and machine algorithm um, making music. A piece of yeah, so it does involve cattle prodding. Uh, haven't considered that yet. I'm we want to make it a bit less painful for them, but it'd probably be quite interesting. But I mean, it's you know. There's there's an orchestra they play. There's somebody on stage, and then the audience they they put up like a white or a black thing. Yeah, and so they're gonna hold like that program. To that, so that's the current plan. <laughs> so they hold that program. So you, you know, you would all be holding up pro programs, kind of like as the the whole audience together are interacting with it. The piece is changing and shifting. Um, so both the the players on the stage and Computer algorithm are following that, and they're both an algorithm, really. And they become an algorithm. Yeah, and and the audience are kind of part of that algorithmic process. So um, that's an interesting one. The other one I think with uh, with collective experiences, which is could be interesting, is sort of biometrics. So I, I did a thing with the BBC a while ago where we had a BBC show. We had like. Um, a galvanic skin response, which is basically a lie detector on the whole audience. So you could sense their kind of emotional, how, how heightened their emotions was, and that was driving a piece of music that they um, they kind of directed, really, through the, their emotional state. Um, the other one I think that could be interesting for collectives is um, sort of group-created or mediated experiences, so artists or what we think of as the kind of core creators might put something out into the world, which then everybody kind of changes and 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 contributes to and alters, um, so that the final thing, which is kind of moving around, is is more fluid. I think those these are all of the types of things that you can explore when you. You break away from a fixed form, basically, like a, you know, like a CD, a record, or an MP3 are basically all conceptually the same thing. You break away from that fixed, frozen thing into something that's fluid. Those are, these are the things that software allows you to do. Um, I don't know if anybody saw recently. With um, I worked with an orchestra in Bristol called Parrot Orchestra, which is a disabled orchestra, um, and. Uh, I think only like a few days ago, they'd launched uh, a baton called a haptic baton, which means that instrumentalists that are blind can follow the conductor um, using different triggers and everything. But they're basically wearing um, vibrating patches on them to give them the beat and the, the dynamics, which I think is an amazing source of and use of technology in, in a way that makes includes everybody and doesn't make everybody feel like they're different. It kind of takes, you know, 
you, you wouldn't even know by watching them who is who is a disabled and just someone else. So I think that's an amazing thing with various things like that. If there is a cricketer who is who was paralysed from a, I think a car accident and and uh, a company called Human Instruments. I think they're based in Cambridge, maybe in Oxford, but they've designed um, a software and a headset that and use breath as well, so the pressure of breath could then um, and where the eyes were then levelled could you could hit the guy that was using it could change the note could change the dynamics by the pressure of the breath as if he was playing the trumpet again, and I think those kind of that development and and how quickly that can move over the next ten years I think is just beautiful in, in enabling new instruments you know getting everybody playing stuff using your laptop it's it's totally increasing yeah it, I guess it is going to open up different ways of playing um, that kind of thing and I suppose for someone like me personally with the ability whatsoever <laughs> as in I can't read music or anything like that um, I wanted to talk you, you talked a bit ab about Kepler and I, I believe that you've been working on something called Concordia, right. which is something based around the music of the spheres, mm. so reaching out into mm. the cosmos to, to make new things. Tell me, tell me a bit further about that. Yeah, so in, in this pursuit of, 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 of investigative music, I've, I've been um, developing this idea for a new instrument that allows you to play with all the systems in each instrument. And I think part of the, the the exciting thing about it is that in history, if you look at the history of musical instruments, um, you don't find very many multiplayer instruments. You an instrument is something that you play by yourself, and you may play in a band or in an orchestra with other people, but they're all they're playing their own thing, and then you you kind of play together. But but building an instrument that people actually literally play together, kind of like starts to erode the the boundaries between video games and um, collective installation, uh, you know, art installations and, uh, and dance and movement and um, allows people to, to have a, a, an experience across space and time that wouldn't really be available without these, these new technologies of extended reality, virtual reality, um, and game design. So not only does it allow us, the technology allows us to access reality at scales that are beyond human scales by turning m basically mathematics into sound and making it experienceable directly, but it also allows us to connect with each other through those experiences in ways that weren't, weren't possible, you know, even, I don't know, even 10 years ago, really. To, to create an instrument in virtual reality or an augmented reality that people can play across the world uh, together and hopefully um, across different types of physical abilities as well and, and musical abilities that really just to start um, making music inclusive and, and, and building, in fact, building a community around that experience so that the experience becomes even economically, it becomes an experience where you you can contribute value to this community through exploring these musical ideas together and you know, a, a whole new uh, way of thinking about art and music in society. And right now we treat it as a kind of a commodity that 
that you buy and sell and that and that you measure and 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 it's extremely materialistic view of of music but i think if we start building building experiences and instruments that people can play where that's not the 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 model where the materialism of it is 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 somehow removed um you can really start to explore each other and each other's ideas and and reality together musically without having this yeah the the tyranny of materialism coloring everything in, in the experience it's a very nice idea thank you so that's a that's a <laughs> yeah, that that's the idea with this instrument is that if you play it you you earn value if you build part of it you earn value uh, just by participating in it you're earning value and you're earning kind of money um, and uh, that it's all kind of kept track of on the blockchain with all these new technologies that are just really just coming in into use and and looking at ways that this these technologies can enable us to go back in time and we use music to con to connect with each other and we use music to celebrate our our things in our lives and births and deaths and community achievements and you know i think if we if we can get to the point where our technology disappears in a way and we're not we're no longer thinking about the technology and we're no longer thinking about things materially but we're just thinking about okay what do we need to use what what can we use that so that we can connect with each other so that we can find those things that are way bigger than ourselves and that we can see ourselves in that bigger context yeah that that that's what this instrument what concordia is about and um yeah it's it's really just a grand experience experiment i guess in how how can we build a new type of music uh economy and and a music community that gets back to the fundamental principles of music that of connecting us to each other and connecting us to the divine okay i mean how how are you aware of the other people who are I don't know yet. We haven't built it. We're still, well, we're still it starting then. it out. <laughs> no, because I'm, no, I'm excited. And, and I got this from, from, we were talking about this backstage, actually, before we came out. Um, often, when we get into discussions of the future, it's usually a dystopian future, isn't it? I mean, mm. certainly when you go to the cinema or, or watch on telly, it's just like, oh, yeah, you're going to be, like, stuck in some kind of wrecked, multi-story car park <laughs> with some litter blowing on you with a skin disease <laughs> probably in a puddle <laughs> and what the puddles I've are key. The puddles are key for sure. what I've enjoyed about reading uh, your, your pamphlet and also this discussion tonight is, is more that um, this is a, a, a view of the future that isn't like that but that is you know there is one little thing as well not to put like a wrinkle in there but when you were talking before of using something wrong, um, me, me and Rob had a really nice chat like before the book, and like he's responsible for loads of it. <laughs> like to be fair, but he's talking. We're talking about machine learning and artificial intelligence, and having this system which is learning your emotions and it's providing you music and it's it's taking these second guesses on who you are as a person, and the music it's providing. Sometimes with machine learning, and you saw this in the AlphaGo game where they had a machine playing AlphaGo against the, the big champion. And 
the machine played such a strange move, such a one in 1,000 move, that this human player had to go out for a cigarette because he couldn't take it. Completely blew his mind. And this one move that he did was so strange and unique and bizarre and creative that it completely opened up a whole new part of the game and our understanding of how to play it. And if we are using these technologies where we are trying to understand what it is to be human and we are kind of being hooked up to them in some kind of like biofeedback way or we are trying to understand the universe through music, there is a chance that we'll experience something that's incredibly uncomfortable and could completely dispel our whole notion of, of what is reality. <laughs> so this utopia in the book <laughs> is pretty good, but, but there, is this kind of, there is this caveat where we are, we, we've opened the black box. Like we don't, we don't know what a lot of these technologies are doing. They're running along and we've, we've lost control. Like we can't, we can't reverse engineer a lot of the problems that might happen. But we can I'm write. I'm almost going to yeah. be back in that multi-story town. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd escaped it. But there is the other part as well, where that multi-story car park, it might be, you might be happy, but in a way that you have never, ever in your wildest dreams have thought of. It might be so strange and bizarre, but you might be happy. You've just got 16 heads, and <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. Um, I think we should, uh, there's a lot of questions in my mind, and I'm sure there's a lot of questions in the audience's mind. At this point, I would like to, I don't know how this is going to work, I don't know if we've got some people with some uh, microphones, but if you'd like to ask any of our uh, panel a question, then now's the time to do it. There's a lot of food for thought here. Yeah, put your hand up and, and um, we'll bring a microphone to you. very much. Um, hi. Uh, so I just want, when, Joyce, when you asked about kind of collective experience and music, it's got me quite excited. I just wanted to kind of share a project that's uh, happened last week and get a bit of feedback on that. Um, we, so I'm, I work in an experiential uh, company and we put on a project called an attention sequencer, which was an immersive musical and visual avatar where essentially if an audience of, we had about 80 people going there, uh, they, they could interact with a visual and a, and a composition that was built, we call it like an instrumental composition. And this uh, avatar had self-esteem, and depending on how you, uh, the audience interacted with it, it would actually generate the music. Um, and this was a really interesting experience in kind of giving the audience agency in terms of that compositional process. So I'm just wondering, in a sort of, I'm very interested in these like speculative futures though. What, do you, especially Robert, you're talking about the, uh, this future idea you have for audience composition, you know, we've had this hierarchy just evolve where everyone can produce in their bedroom now, but what's the kind of the collective compositional experience in a tech-enhanced future way? Any yeah. questions? Yeah. I, I think it's, it's a funny thing because, um, you know, it, it also relates to what um, Sam and Kerry were talking about, is that, um, you know, what we've done with music for a long time, you know, really for, especially in, in Western tradition of music throughout many hundreds of years, we've sort of moved into this sort of use of music, which is, I think, an introverted kind of process where, the mu where mu 
music is uh, is really a communicative medium whereby the inside, the internal world of the artist is investigated and kind of um, uh, communicated in a, in a way which is sort of non-verbal but highly culturally specific through this medium of music to a lot of people kind of thing. And, uh, and you know, these types of, um, you know, I think what Kelly's doing, for instance, is the opposite of that. So it's a kind of, it's not actually about looking in at all, the process, it's about looking out and understanding everybody else and, and the universe. And, um, but these types of processes, I think, where you, you, you say, okay, um, you know, make a piece of music which uh, maybe is still on the stage a bit and maybe is kind of in the audience a bit and maybe it's a kind of mixture of all of these things affecting each other and maybe the idea of the ego of the artist is kind of collapsing slightly and people feel like they're kind of inside of the piece of music. Maybe they sort of felt a bit like that once when they were dancing at a rave and they felt like they were kind of inside of the music, but now they kind of really are a bit like that, you know. Um, these types of projects, I think, start to blur that boundary. But it's a, it's a complex thing because we're, we're you know, we're sort of hooked on the idea of the, of the, the artist, like as being the special thing that's different from the audience, you know. And we're sort of hooked on, on that. And, you know, I, I, I kind of thought that that might change with the internet, but I think it's actually getting worse, you know. So I think it's, um, uh, it's not, these things are not going to kind of, they don't sort of change overnight. Uh, you can't change them overnight because, you know, for instance, the Concordia system, one of the things I think that's most interesting about that is going to be, not what it does, not what the music it makes, or not, not what harmony, harmonies and relationships it describes, but how we hear them, what happens in the process of how we hear them, and whether it reminds us of, you know, suddenly the planets, of the, the, the moons of Jupiter are, are playing yesterday. Well, what happens then? You know, because then we go, oh, hang on a minute, no, I'm thinking about my bed. <laughs> you know, because that's, those are kind of, it, it's going to be complicated, I think, the process. Yeah. Speaking as a lead singer, um, I, I, what was the self-esteem of the avatar at the end of the performance, just out of interest? like my life story thanks <laughs> um, uh, next question please um, yeah I can't see where the microphone is yeah sorry yeah yeah do we know where the microphone is just hand it over here you can have, I tell you what you can have my microphone sit right back down from the mic. 
Um, I was really interested in connecting two of your conversations, one of which was you mentioned AI and the idea that there could be music that really starts to know you as a person and, and to make second guesses as to who you are and what you think. And also, we know that music can control some of the things, some of our um, behaviors. So um, combine this with the fact that in real life now, there are every now and again some case on telly where uh, you hear of somebody claiming diminished responsibility for their actions because music made them do that, which at the moment, they feel music was part of it to them, but it wasn't. How soon before music actually controls our actions? Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you know what's... Yeah, <laughs> you're that not one. leaving that car park in his home yeah. soon. <laughs> That's not on that. Okay. <laughs> but that that is that is scarily close, and I guess that's the thing. We we sat here today, and you're probably looking for some kind of insights to think what might be happening in five, ten, fifteen, twenty years, and it it does feel super close. The the idea of an AI making pretty effective music that we like and moves us. I think Brian Eno puts that at like six or seven years at the minute. That's on the Eno scale. <laughs> um, so if if you can listen to a piece of music, be convinced it's it's good and you, you're moved by it, amazing. If you're then working in things like Robbie's doing, where it's reactive to your everyday experience, it could be. I mean, if you think of the amount of data that that we're being harvested for already, the the book I wrote was kind of. I wrote it, and then at the end, I was like, I've accidentally condoned all these horrible things we're doing. <laughs> like, if there was a thing that could pick up on my mood and my physiology and my environment, my text messages, the films I'm watching, the tone of my voice in conversation, if that was providing me with music the whole time, it is going to control me, and it is going to do whatever it wants to do. And if the, the purpose, well, if the, the kind of agency and the thing that's running it is an AI and the purpose of it is to make music, then that car park that Jarvis is in is going to feel really lovely <laughs> compared to <laughs> where I'm going to be with this thing. And there's, there's, there's kind of no regulation. Like, the, there's another thing that, that I wanted to speak about tonight, which is the, the role of artists in the future where... Everything that Rob says is completely true, but we we kind of need to redefine what we're doing and why we're here. And as artists, we're communicators. And if there's something incredibly scary, incredibly close, and nobody's aware of it, it's going to take someone to make a really good episode of Black Mirror <laughs> or something to warn us. And especially in ethics, like we need to... We need to get really into ethics, and we need to get really behind it and tell really fascinating, engaging stories, because we're completely sleepwalking into a complete and utter mess. And I've completely and utterly fueled it as well by writing <laughs> an optimistic little tome about it. Yeah, so thanks for your question. <laughs> We got time for one more question, you think? It says ooh down there. Ooh. I know it says ooh. It stop. says stop, but I think we should <laughs> have one more question. So uh, who would like to you sir? You can ask us the final question.
Consumers of music would go on. Consumption of pop superposes music at home, but it doesn't seem to have in terms a huge play on consumption of music. Am I that wrong? Another thing I wondered that we tend to think of, of um, technological advances as, as kind of destroying what's gone before, but that doesn't usually happen, is it? I mean, the classical music still exists, folk music is still around. This could be a different way of making music. It doesn't mean that it's going to mean the rest of it doesn't exist anymore. I'm desperately looking for optimism. Here. <laughs> I mean, when you, when you talk about what you're doing and the guy in the crowd, like these these collective experiences, like it is removing the ego, like Rob says. And what you're thinking about is is the effect of music rather than like where it's coming from like the guy, what it's there for, what they look like in their pictures. Like it's, it's, it's a different way of looking at music that completely levels the playing field. And if it feels good, it feels good, and you give it a tick, and then you'll probably experience loads more like it. And if you're using it as a collective experience, and you're together, you're meditating, like when you, when you sing in a choir, you, you feel a closeness, and you feel a part of humanity that you can very rarely access in real life. And by, by doing these kind of projects and by having kids in like Beijing and like Rio de Janeiro all hooked up to Concordia or something, like you're, you're, you're sharing and it's, it's yeah, you, it's not going to be coming from like Warner Brothers or like a record label, it doesn't matter. Like you're there together, you're humans and it's sound and it's nice. It's a lovely place to put it, as uh, end it, as a, we all become one universal choir, yeah. <laughs> singing together, yeah? Come on, yeah. more enthusiasm. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much to our panel. Thank you very much for coming to listen, to hear the future first, and thanks to the Science Museum for allowing us in here. Ta-ra. Thank you. <laughs>